Some stories are meant to inform and instruct. Here's the moral, here's the teaching, now go and do. Simple. But other stories have a different objective. They're meant to mark out the boundaries of a kind of squared circle. That's an old poetic name for a wrestling ring. Wrestling traditionally takes place in a circle, but in the case of public matches, when the ring was roped off from the spectators, the ropes formed a larger square. Thus the name squared circle for a wrestling ring. And some stories and teachings are like that. They don't settle an issue, but instead mark off a space for wrestling with it, for grappling with how particular principles may or may not apply in our everyday lives. These stories don't give us answers exactly, but they do help us discover a demanding, useful set of questions. In the New Testament Gospels, Jesus often teaches this way, by giving us squared circles, sometimes by telling us a story, a parable, for example, and sometimes by creating a story through his actions. He ropes off the ring, squares the circle, and invites us in so we can struggle with a key question or challenge at the heart of human life. And no question is more challenging, more controversial, more radioactive, more personal, more vexing, more conflicted, and more pressing than the question we'll tackle in this episode. Christianity is often in the headlines today around topics directly or indirectly related to sexuality, but Jesus says very, very little about sex. What he does talk about, quite a bit actually, is money. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part five of our six-part series on understanding Jesus, and in this episode, we'll tackle one of the most contentious subjects in his curriculum, the subject of money, wealth possessions. As a focusing lens, we'll use the story of Jesus and the rich man in the Gospel of Mark. So, let's step into the ring. Round one, the story. A rich man stops Jesus on the road and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And then he says, you know the commandments. And the rich man says, yes, yes, I've kept the commandments since my youth. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, etc., etc. And Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, you lack only one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the proceeds to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the rich man heard this, he was stunned and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are astounded and say, Well, then who then can be saved? 
And Jesus says, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And then Peter, good old Peter, chimes in at the very end and says, hey, uh, we left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, yes, yes. And in the end, you'll be rewarded. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Round two. Who is Jesus talking to? When Jesus says, sell everything and give the proceeds to the poor and follow me, well, he's talking to the rich man, right? I mean, I'm not a rich man. I'm a filmmaker and a writer and a teacher, and I can tell you this is not a get-rich-quick scheme or even a get-rich-slowly scheme. I'm in the middle class. I'm not rich. Maybe you're thinking the same thing, that you're more or less in the middle. So let's take a look at that. Let's do a little inventory. First, what counts as rich? There's no official definition, of course, but it seems reasonable to say that the top 20% and certainly the top 10% would be considered rich. And in the United States, in round numbers, if your household makes more than $100,000 in annual income, that puts you in the top 20% of income earners. And if you have about $500,000 in net worth, that's if you take all your assets, your savings, your investments, house, car, jewelry, anything and everything, and then subtract any and all debt, the result is your net worth. If you have $500,000 or more in net worth, that puts you in the top 20% in terms of wealth. So if you're making 100 grand or more in income, or if you have a net worth of 500 grand or more, you're rich. But that's all within the United States. If we take a step back and broaden the view to the globe, well, then if you have a net worth of $100,000, that puts you in the top 10% globally. And an annual income of, say, $40,000 or more puts you right up at the top of the global income scale. It turns out, even if you don't consider yourself rich in the little picture, you may well be rich in the big picture. Which is why many have concluded that Jesus isn't only talking to the rich man in this story. He's talking to many, many more. He's talking to me. And he just may be talking to you. Round three. What must we do? There's a lot packed into the rich man's opening question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First off, it's worth noticing that the man runs up and kneels before Jesus. In Mark, running up and kneeling is the sort of thing someone does if they're urgently asking for healing. So keep that in mind. This guy is struggling. Second, his question presupposes that eternal life is inherited by people who have done certain things, presumably good things, righteous things. But Jesus rejects this presupposition right out of the gates. No one is good, he says, but God alone. It's as if he says, you're looking at this the wrong way round. Salvation isn't a sport in which those who do good win the prize. Only God is good. Only God saves. 
You can't rely on your own efforts, your own doing, your own resources, your own goodness. Salvation is an unearned gift from a graceful God. So, Jesus' first move is, don't think of salvation as something you do. It's something you receive, not because you deserve it, but because God is a God of grace. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, salvation's a gift, now go on your merry way. Instead, he looks at the rich man, and he loves him, and he invites him to take another step. You lack one thing, Jesus says. An ironic remark to a rich man who ostensibly lacks for nothing. But what exactly is the one thing he lacks? Is it moral virtue? The ethical standing that arguably comes from selling everything and giving the proceeds to the poor? Maybe. But if that were true, if this selling and giving were simply the good and right thing for human beings to do, we'd expect Jesus to recommend it not only to this man, but to the crowds as well, or at least to his disciples. But Jesus doesn't do that. It's true that the disciples do give up everything they own, leaving behind their boats and nets by the shore, but they don't sell their possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. So if it isn't moral virtue or ethical standing that the rich man lacks, what is it? Round four. Perhaps what he lacks is trust in God. Perhaps he trusts too much in his own resources, impressive as they are. Perhaps he's nursing an illusion of self-sufficiency, and relinquishing his wealth would give him a more vivid, tangible experience of depending on God, who is, after all, the ultimate source of all goodness and salvation and blessing. Maybe what he lacks is trust. Round five. But on the other hand, it's worth noting that Jesus doesn't call the man to simply walk away from his possessions or burn them in a bonfire, but rather to sell them and share the proceeds with neighbors in need. Perhaps the one thing he lacks is generosity the joyful sharing of blessings with others. One of the hazards of wealth is that it can cut us off from genuine, kind-hearted participation in community, which is to say, from living a fully human life. And perhaps these two possibilities, a lack of trust in God and a lack of generosity, are really two sides of the same coin, the coin of self-centeredness. Perhaps that's the ailment from which he needs healing. He needs to center himself not in himself, but in God. And he needs to focus not on saving himself, but on joyfully, generously contributing to the health of his neighbors and to the wider community. You know, come to think of it, that sounds pretty good. The point of the story is really about trust and and generosity, not about selling everything we own. So yes, by all means, let us become less self-centered. 
But when it comes to our possessions, well, there's no need to get carried away, right? We can trust more and be a little more generous and still hang on to our stuff. Round six. Here again, the story pushes back against our rationalization. Look at it this way. If possessions function as a corrupting barrier for this rich man, and also for the disciples who left everything behind in order to follow Jesus, why wouldn't possessions also function as a corrupting barrier for us? If the rich man's wealth, his stuff, his many possessions, are bound up with a lack of trust in God or a lack of generosity to his neighbors, are we really so sure that we don't suffer from the same problem? I mean, if Jesus understood discipleship in startlingly material terms as a way of life with concrete economic consequences in the first century, why would our discipleship in the 21st century be any different. In the end, Jesus' call to sell what you own and give the money to the poor isn't a one-size-fits-all command meant for everyone. If it were, he would have announced it more broadly, starting with his disciples. Instead, there's something about this particular man that gives rise to Jesus' advice. Perhaps it's his preoccupation with himself, his own efforts, his own resources, betraying a lack of trust in God as the source of salvation, or perhaps it's his lack of generosity with regard to others in need, or perhaps it's both. Pious and earnest as he is, the rich man is nevertheless self-centered, oriented away from both God and neighbor. But if the call to sell everything and give it away isn't for everyone, it could still be for us. We shouldn't be too quick to declare immunity, as if Jesus is talking to somebody else. The rich man's malady may be a condition for which we too require healing. And in any case, for Jesus, discipleship has significant economic consequences that demand to be taken seriously. As the Book of Acts describes it, the earliest Christian communities sold their assets, pooled the proceeds, and held them in common, distributing them to each as any had need. Accordingly, for Christians today living in a world riven by increasing economic inequality, this challenging, haunting story pushes us to confront just what the economic dimensions of the gospel might look like in our lives. In short, the church is called not only to be a holy community or a moral community, but a decidedly economic community as well, a movement following Jesus, who again and again insisted that faith and money are sides of one coin, not two. Exactly what this looks like in our lives is a question for us to wrestle with, each in our own context our own squared circle. Jesus calls us, yesterday and today, to step into the ring. The good news of the gospel in all of this is that God's grace, not our own striving to be good, is the source of salvation. That Jesus looks at us 
and loves us, and so invites us to move beyond concerns with our own inheritance and focus instead on sharing our resources with others in need. And that God seeks to transform even and especially our economic lives into beautiful, humane, generative patterns of love and grace. In the end, human beings are economic creatures. We are more than economic, of course, but not less. And so it only makes sense that God's salvation would include definite effects on our economic lives, just as it did for the earliest disciples. As we struggle together to figure out what those economic effects might be, we can take heart that Jesus sees us and loves us and calls us forward. And above all, that even when it comes to camels and needles, for God, all things are possible. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.